Psalm of the day is Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known all his ways to Moses. He acted his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, shows slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove all our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, he does, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place is its and its place knows it no more. For the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant covenant and remember his to do his commandments. The Lord established his throne to in the heavens, his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, your, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers to do all his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All men are like grass, and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 19. We're reading verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, gracious Father, we ask that you would speak, that by your spirit you would give us understanding, and that you would guide us into all truth. We pray that you speak, Lord, for your servants are here listening. Amen. It is our practice in the summer to take a break from our normal 
scheduled preaching series, which is in 1 Corinthians, to spend some time in the Psalms over the weeks of summer where we have many traveling and people in and out. And so we are beginning that this week. We are working out of Psalm 103 on this VBS Sunday to consider the place and role of children in our lives and in the life of the church as well. And so you will get some of the themes as to why we do things like Barnyard Roundup. You missed it. When you, that, when you hear those words, you're just supposed to say it, okay? Um, and uh, it echoed throughout this building this week. Oscar Wilde, in his short story, The Picture of Dorian Gray, tells the story of a handsome young man who was asked to sit for a portrait The painter was so taken with his features and with his handsomeness that he wanted to paint a complete portrait of him. And so after many hours of labor and several sittings, the portrait is unveiled. Dorian's response to the portrait was surprising. He was distraught. He was crushed. And this is what he said. How sad it is. I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful. But this picture will remain always young. It will never be older than this particular day of June. If it were only the other way, if it were I who was to be always young in the picture that was to grow old, for that, for that I would give everything. Yes, there is nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. And the portrait created a a crisis. It confronted Dorian with this existential moment of his mortality, of the transience of his life, of his fragility. That there in front of him is his youthful handsomeness, his beauty, and he knew that like the grass that withers and fades, so his body would wither and fade as well. And it crushed him. He is driven to despair as mortality and transience meets him in that moment. And this is a confrontation. And this confrontation is disturbing. It's disturbing to Oscar Wilde, the author of the story, but it's also disturbing to us that when we have that confrontation, when our mortality presses in on us, when we feel it, it discomforts us, it disturbs us. As a culture... We don't like to speak about death. It's incredibly uncomfortable. We try to press it away and put it in a part of society where it's never seen, where it's not talked about, where it's not processed. It's considered too serious. In fact, psychologists tell us that the only people in Western culture who like to talk about death are those who are actually dying. But this doesn't serve us well because denial never really works. It doesn't help. But in Psalm 103, God confronts us with this reality as well, that we are confronted with the inescapable reality of our mortality. Listen carefully to the words again from verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. 
And these verses bring into our focus the crisis of human existence, the primary crisis of human existence. Our mortality, our fragility, our transience. There is no place to hide from it. There's no refuge from this challenge. The reality of death can be ignored, but it cannot be escaped. It can be evaded, but it can't be avoided. That it finds us. And it demands an answer. It demands an answer of how we will process that. How we will absorb it. Will it lead us into a frightful despair like Dorian Gray? Or can we find another way? Can we find a way through the grace of God to deal with these realities? And so as a Christian, what does God say about your mortality? What does he reveal about that? How can the grace of God enable you to process that and deal with it? How does grace teach us to encounter it? There's two things from Psalm 103 that guide us in the way. And the first is that we see that God overcomes the source of our mortality, our shameful guilt. That this is what the grace of God gives us. And Psalm 103 is a celebration of the grace of God that forgives and heals Because you see, in Scripture, from the very first pages of the Bible, mortality and our sinful shame are connected. That death exists in our world that was created very good by God for us to fellowship with Him, to enjoy Him, and to enjoy His good works, and to enjoy one another. But that that good creation was polluted, that it was destroyed, that it was tainted by sin. But now God in grace and mercy has done something about what we introduced. We introduced that mortality because of our sinful rebellion, turning against God, failing to give thanks to him. And Psalm 103 tells that story through the people of Israel. If you'll follow with me in verse 7. David says, he made known to us his ways, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so often in the Psalms, what we find is a compressed telling of a history, of a story. And the story being told here is found at the end of the book of Exodus. It's it's towards the end in chapter 34 where we find God revealing himself to Moses. And this quotation comes that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The remarkable thing about this statement is not just the truth it contains, but where this was spoken. That it was in the history of Israel, just after the people had been redeemed from Egypt and delivered through the Red Sea. There at the foot of the mountain, while Moses is communing with God, and the people are to be waiting on his return. Do you know what they did? They fashioned a golden calf, and they began to worship it. They gave themselves to idols, the very things they were not to do. And so here on the honeymoon of the covenant, they're being unfaithful. And yet God announces that he is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger, and that he abounds in steadfast love, that he will not always chide, that is, that he will not always discipline, nor will he keep his anger forever, that God is gracious And isn't that just the way with us, though? 
Aren't we like Israel at the foot of the mountain, having received the grace of God, all of his kindness given to us in Jesus, the blessings of redemption, the blessings of creation, yet we turn and go our own way? And God overcomes all of our sin that he announces that it's null and void. Follow in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is an announcement of immense proportions. But the psalmist actually uses the full range of the original language to talk about the reality of sin. There were three words in the Hebrew that we translate sin, iniquity, and transgression. And in these short verses, in verses 10 through 12, we find each of those words being used. And that God overcomes sin, that God overcomes our transgressions, that God overcomes our iniquity. That there are no small sins or big sins that God cannot overcome. It's a total reality that the grace of God overwhelms the sin of human beings. For those who fear Him, for those who trust Him, for those who look to Him in faith. This is what the grace of God is. That it swallows up our sins and therefore cancels our mortality. That we can be united with God again and live in fellowship with Him. And the main struggle for us in this is not knowing so much that God is gracious. Most people can accept the theological statement that the Lord is merciful and gracious. But what we tend to struggle with is that we tend to struggle to receive that grace and generosity. To think that it applies exactly to us. We tend to doubt that God will forgive us for our particular sins, for our failures, for those things we know where we fall short. John Newton, one of my theological heroes, he was a writer of hymns. He was a former slave trader who was brought to faith, converted, became a pastor in the Church of England in the late 1700s. He was not a great preacher but he was known for his letter writing. He had extensive correspondence across England with different ministers and people. One of the men that he corresponded with was a minister named William Howell. Howell had fallen sick and fell into despair and despondency, and he thought that he was not worthy of the grace of God. Newton writes him a letter. Listen carefully to it. It's brilliant. He begins by asking a question. Did you ever try to persuade your congregation that our Lord Jesus could save little sinners and forgive little sins, but that great sinners and scarlet sins were beyond the limits of his power and mercy? He's saying, did you preach that way? Did you preach that God will only forgive certain sins but not other sins? And of course, the rhetorical answer was no. He didn't preach that way. And so Newton goes in to now press the case. If you didn't preach that way, then why are you believing that way? Why are you relating to God? And so he closes the letter with this. He says, when we burden ourselves with our many sins, we are apt to overlook the very greatest of them, unbelief. 
For what can be a greater proof of stubbornness and pride than to dare to contradict the express word of God, to say that he will not pardon when he declares that he will, to persist in it that he will make differences when he has assured us that he will make none. And this is the promise of the grace of God when it comes to our guilt and our shame, that God doesn't make differences, that he knows our sins, and when he offers to forgive, that he means it, that he will remove them as far as the east is from the west, infinitely gone, as far as the heavens above are on the earth below, that God removes and forgives And he has the power and the right to because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That when Jesus goes to the cross to suffer on our behalf, he cancels out the justice due to our sins. He receives it into his own body. But then because he had not sinned, he rises again from the dead. And when we place our faith in him, we now stand in Christ before God. That we're right with God because of what Jesus has done for us. We don't have anything to commend ourselves to God except for the fact that we failed. But Jesus is the one who commends us because we stand in him. And we're safe and we're secure, forgiven, and we're freed. And so we must fight to believe. We must battle that unbelief that God doesn't make differences. And this psalm is a prayer It's a prayer that is working to recollect and to remember and to recall the grace of God. And friends, we must massage that prayer and work it into our lives that we recollect, that we remember, that we recall, and that we know that God doesn't swerve from his commitment to be gracious. That in his works, when he revealed his grace and mercy in Jesus, he doesn't turn from that decision. That is God revealing himself to us as to what his kind intentions for his people are. And this is the first thing that God does about our mortality as he overcomes the source of it, and he forgives our sins. But the second piece of this, how as Christians do we encounter mortality and handle it? And we see here that God overcomes also the sting of mortality. Not only does he overcome the source, but also the sting of it, because you see, mortality can be incredibly discouraging and depressing. Remember what the psalmist says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. That can feel incredibly empty, incredibly dreary. Why are we talking about this on VBS Sunday of all Sundays, you may ask? The transience of life can cripple us. It can paralyze us. And it leaves many people with a cynical futility. Ernest Hemingway captures this in his awesome novel, The Sun Also Rises, because he's simply quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's asking the major question of life is, where is meaning and is everything just futility? Vanity, vanity, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. It is the ultimate question that confronts us all. Is there meaning as our lives wither away, as they go and as they come, as the wind passes over it and we're gone? And the grace of God says that there is. 
that in all the transience and all the uncertainty, in the coming and going of life, that there is a permanent meaning in the grace of God, in our living and in our dying. Follow the logic of this prayer. He goes from the statement about transience to verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And this is the answer to the cynical despair. The final theological statement, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So that in our living and dying, as we endure in a sin-cursed world that affects our bodies, that ultimately takes our lives, that God has not lost his purposes. He doesn't somehow abdicate his throne, that he's not fallen off of it. That the Lord, his reign is permanent and been established through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not forsaken it. And that in our living and in our dying and what we oftentimes experience as futility, that God has his great purposes, that he is prosecuting, that he is working out, that he's pursuing. And friends, we find that promise that it's from everlasting to everlasting. That's the steadfast commitment and love and the saving deliverances of God that are all directed to you, his people, those who he has set apart through Jesus to be his own, that he would direct all of that kindness to you and that you can know that life is not meaningless. Life is not purposelessness. And part of the experience of that meaning we find in verse 8 and verse 17 in the second half, and his righteousness to children's children. That this is at the heart of biblical faith. That a meaning and meaningful and well-lived life includes the preparation of the next generation who would carry forward God's purposes. That God does have a redemptive plan in, in all the sin and brokenness of our world. And one of the ways that we contribute to that plan is bringing up children, whether our own or others, but as a covenant family, as a church committed to this, to raise children in the knowledge of the Lord, that they be the next generation who would teach their children and their children's children to place their hope in God, is the language of Psalm 78 that this is one of the ways that we participate in the work of the kingdom of God, of his reign, is we give ourselves wholeheartedly to that. Last week I was at General Assembly for our denomination, and it always is an opportunity to reconnect with friends and to talk about uh, various local ministries and what's happening. One friend and new acquaintance asked me about you to speak about you and what God was doing in our midst. And one of the things that we noted was the remarkable favor God has shown to us in our children's ministry. That just over three years ago, we had eight children. <laughs> and that God has multiplied that. And God has granted us a gift in that. And so my friend asked me, he said, well, what did you guys do to make that happen and the answer was simple. I said, well, we decided that we need to make a priority of it. And he said, well, you know, that was, that was really smart. Because if you wanted to get young families, you need to minister to their children. 
And so he was approaching it from that very pragmatic basis, that if you want to grow your church young, you just emphasize doing things for children. I could understand what he said, but I also knew that that wasn't what drove us. You see, there's things that the church does because it's the church. It's not to simply grow. It's not just to have those pragmatic basis that a congregation can grow young again. It's not just to have young families and children and have a life. That though that may be a byproduct and something that happens on the side, that the reason the church is committed to children is because God is committed to your children, to children's children, his righteousness, his saving deliverances. He promises And so the church, whether it has eight kids or zero or 500, it doesn't matter. We give ourselves to that and we invest ourselves in that, not for the crass purpose of just growing, but because this is what the heart of God reveals to us about how his kingdom is executed on the earth and how he carries forward his purposes. And part of the meaning of our lives, whether we have children or not, whether we are raising them right now or not, but as a family, as a church, that we invest ourselves in that cause. And it was a wonderful delight this past week to see younger mothers and older men, older mothers and young men helping out and contributing to the life of our littlest ones. Those who Jesus takes up in his arm and blesses. Those who Jesus embraces. And you know a lot about a church as to what it prioritizes and what it reveals The disciples were trying to press the kids back from Jesus. He's too important for this. And yet he rebukes them for it. And friends, this is why we do what we do. Because this is how God carries forward his purposes. This is how God answers transience as he continues his kingdom through our children and our children's children as they trust in him. And of course we recognize and we know that not every one of our children matures to walk in firm faith, that there's always this reality of Jacob and Esau that goes beyond our understanding. But yet that doesn't keep us from affirming that the promise is to our children. And so we hold fast to that, and we can grieve it, and we pray and ask for God to work. And we do that together. But we're committed to the advancement of God's purposes as to how he says he will do it. And friends, this is the simple answer to the crisis of mortality. That God overcomes the source of that mortality and he overcomes the sting of it, giving us a meaningful and a purpose-driven life in which we can serve him and know that his steadfast and everlasting love will not fail, that it will follow us all the way down into death, and that God will bring all of his kingdom purposes to maturity. And that's when he speaks a better word on the final day. And he raises our bodies to dwell with him in a new creation forever. Where everything is right and every manner of thing is right. Where the pollution of sin is removed and that scourge is scrubbed clean. And God's original intent is even excelled. And creation is made whole again. And it is the grace of God that will remove all the sting all the source of mortality, and he cancels it out. And all his family will be joined together. Friends, that's the great barnyard roundup. You will that day. It'll surprise us all. Paul tells us that we've never thought nor imagined what's going to happen. 
And that's what we live in expectation of. And that's the reality that swallows up mortality through our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for grace and for mercy so undeserved. We know that we're like your people, Israel, that we continue to tell their same story, that despite all of your kindness, that we sin against you, that we're idolatrous in heart. And we suffer the pains, and we know our fragility and our transience. But yet you have given us meaning and purpose, forgiveness of our sins, the removal of shame, and we give thanks to you. We ask, God, that you would turn this into a life of praise and thanksgiving, that we bless you and that we praise you, that we kneel before you and give thanks to you. And may we know meaning and purpose through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.